Good morning, Faith Fellowship Church. Good morning. Happy Easter, or should I say, Christos Anesti. Oh, you know what that means? That's Greek for Christ is risen. You already know the response in English. How many know the response in Greek? It is Alithos Anesti. That means he is truly risen. Truly he is risen. On Good Friday, Seth told us all about tetelestai, taught us a new Greek word. That means it is finished. But this Easter morning, we have a new greeting and a better message as we stand here on Easter morning. Paul said it best in these words to his first letter to the Corinthian churches. I'm reading from the message, 1 Corinthians 15. He said, If corpses can't be raised, then Christ wasn't because he was indeed dead. And if Christ wasn't raised, then all you're doing is wandering around in the dark, as lost as ever. It's even worse for those who died hoping in Christ and resurrection because they're already in the graves. If all we get out of Christ is a little inspiration for a few short years, we're a pretty sorry lot. But the truth is, Christ has been raised. Amen? Amen, yeah. The first in a long line of legacy of those who are going to leave the cemetery. He came to give us so much more than a little inspiration. He came to give us a celebration of life, not only now, but also in the future. So let's try that one more time. Christos Anesti. And the reply, Alithos Anesti. Yeah, amen and amen. Let's pray. We'll see what God has for us this Easter morning. Father, we thank you for sending your son so willingly, and that not only did he come, that he lived a perfect life, a sinless life, that he was put to death on our behalf, three days in the ground, yet, Father, on that third day he rose again. Father, you showed your power as he busted forth in victory over sin, over death, and because of that resurrection, we are of all men most happy, and we can rejoice in what that resurrection gives us this morning. We thank you for new life in Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Well, tomorrow is the 126th running of the Boston Marathon. No surprise, this year, both Russians and those from Belarus are banned. Everything is political these days. The marathon is 26.2 miles long. I can't imagine running for that long for any reason on God's green earth. I get winded just putting my running shoes on, much less running 26 miles. The closest I've come to running a marathon is watching the Boston Marathon on TV. This year, 24,000 people are going to run that race. Do you know how that got started? In 490 B.C., 490 years before Christ, there was a man born by the name of Pheidippides. Pheidippides. And this is how the legend goes. He was involved in the conflict between the Athenians and another bunch of people that, it, you know, that didn't like them, the Persians. And there was this big battle. Now, Pheidippides went to the Spartans to enlist their help in the battle. And then he came back and found out that the battle was already being won. And so they sent him from the little town of Marathon in Athens. And he ran, and he delivered this message. Rejoice, he said. We've conquered. He delivered his message. 
And then he dropped dead from exhaustion. Now, I suppose that's not supposed to be funny, but that always makes me laugh. He just dropped dead from exhaustion. How many of you know this is the legend of how the marathon got started? I'm not making this up. This is how this all got started. He just dropped over dead from exhaustion. So throughout history, people have observed this and said, well, that seems like a good idea. We ought to do that every year. <laughs> Let's see who else we can kill. Well, how messed up are we, right? 24,000 people are expected to run the Boston Marathon this year without a message. They don't even have a message they're trying to deliver. I'd love to go to the finish line one year, and as they stumble across the finish line exhausted, say, what's the message? What's the message? They're going to look at me like I got my head on backwards. Well, today, you don't have to run 26,000 or 26.2 miles, it would seem like that, to hear a message. Proverbs 25, 25 says, like cold water to a weary soul is good news from a distant land. Luke records these words, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. He has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted and to announce that captives shall be released and the blind shall see that the downtrodden shall be freed from their oppressors, and that God is ready to give blessings to all who come to him. Our message is good news. The very God of the universe sent his son, Jesus Christ, to earth to die for us. Not only to proclaim to Telestai, it is finished, but to rise again. Why? Why would he do that? So that we might have life and have it more abundantly. John 10, 10 says, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I have come that you may have life and have it to the full. Abundant life. Years ago, there was an ad on television. Some of you may remember, some of you may not. It was back in the 70s. And it expressed what advertisers in today's age try so hard to express, to help people capture that one element of living that would allow you to live life to the fullest potential for which you were created. To get every ounce of joy and vibrancy that you can out of life. It's why some people run. Why others seek fame and fortune. To try and discover that one thing that will bring you joy and happiness. And that will give you everything for which God created you to be. And in this particular ad, there were four or five young people on a catamaran. You all know what a catamaran is, right? It's like two canoes tied together with a trampoline and a mast in the middle. You ever seen one of these things? Look at that. It's one of the fastest boats in the water. Now, the idea is for the person driving the boat to tip it up so that only one canoe is in the water. That reduces friction, makes it go faster. And everyone else leans on the outside, praying fervently that it will not tip over. And it cuts through the water at tremendous speeds. And these kids are riding the catamaran, and this was the message. You older people may remember it. Younger people, you may, this may not make sense at first. And it went like this. You only go around once in life. How many people recognize that? You remember that? There you go. So you want to reach for all the gusto you can get. You remember that? <laughs> you only go around once. So you want to reach for all the gusto you can get. Now I want to talk about those two things for just a second. Because those two statements are absolutely true. They are true statements. 
True statements designed to get us to listen to the message that the advertisers were trying to get across. Every person in this room is appointed to live once and then to die and then to face God. That first statement is that you'll only live once. Now, there are some religions today that might say that you come back as a fly or if you've been good, maybe as some higher life form. I'm here to tell you, you ain't coming back as a brick. You get one shot at this life, one shot. You only live once. And deep down inside, I don't care what you say you believe, everyone knows it's true. You got one shot at this life. The whole insurance industry is built around this very truth. It's a worthy profession. They help us prepare for that very thing. And their message is the same. You got one shot at this life. That's why the the choices we make as young people and as older people are so important. It's why we need to live each day to the fullest for which God created us. Then the second half is this. Then Then you want to get all the gusto that you can get. Now, our tendency to think, especially if, you're, especially if you're a Christian, is, well, gusto? That doesn't sound like a very Christian thing. I don't know if I should be going for all the gusto. I'll tell you, I believe that if you read the Scriptures, you will see that God never intended for this life to be a waiting room for eternal life. The blessings that God intended for us, some of those are available to us today. And then when we meet Him face to face, we will understand for what He really intended for our lives to be. Jesus said, I have come that you might have life in the most boring, mundane way possible. Is that what he said? No. no. But I tell you, I grew up believing that. I grew up believing that. I grew up believing that if it was fun, it was wrong, or at least it wasn't spiritual. I thought God's job was to stand up in heaven somewhere and look over the balcony of heaven. He kind of stood like that. I had seen the pictures. He's looking down. He's looking, looking at me, and, and there I am. And he says, you know, Jim LaCarwitz, haveth fun. No, let's stomp that out. And there, there are a couple of you of maybe who still believe that. And there are some of you who are unwilling to trust God because you think all he wants to do is rip the joy out of your life. He said, I have come that you might have life and that you might have it to the fullest. You might have it more abundantly that you might know what abundant life is for the purpose for which He created you to be. Now, immediately we begin to add our own agenda to that. Well, that means I'm going to have to be wealthy, or I'm going to have to be famous, or I'm going to have to succeed at at everything I do. And, And God says, my abundance goes well beyond that. It's about a relationship with me. It's about becoming not only everything you can be on the outside, but everything you can be and that God created you to be on the inside. So the advertisers grabbed hold of these two truths and they paraded them out in front so that they could sell a product. How many of you remember what that product was? It was beer. It was beer. You, got, you only go around once, so you want to reach for all the gusto you can get. So drink our beer. Give me a break. At the age of 16, I knew that was wrong. I was no idiot. Well, all right, I was a 16-year-old boy. I was an idiot by definition. But, but I knew I could look around. I had eyes, I had ears. I could look at what was going on, and I, I just observed what was going on around me. At the time, I worked at Sears Central Service on 41st Street. I was in high school in the heart of Hamden. 
And on Saturday mornings, the older guys, they would, they would stumble on into work and their eyes looked like two holes burned out of a, out of a blanket, just hung over. And they'd be talking about how wonderful the night had been. Dude, you should have been there. We were so wasted. It was such a great time. And like, it didn't look like it was a great time to me from the way you're, you're, you're acting this morning. You know, but being the idiot that I was, I decided I need to try this. It only took once, I'll tell you that. I went camping and I drank a, a whole lot of beer and followed that with hard liquor and, and more beer. And it was probably the most religious night of my life. As I lay down in, tent, in the tent and things just spun round and round, all I could say was, oh God, oh God, make it stop. I want to get off this train. Four times I crawled out of that tent to heave up everything I had. By the fourth time, I knew there was nothing left. I fully expected my tennis shoes to come shooting out of my mouth. If this is the fullness of life and it comes from drinking beer, there are cheaper ways to do this. All you need is a good long finger if throwing up is what it's about. So if that's not the answer that we're looking for, then what is? If it isn't beer, what is it? You don't get gusto out of life from drinking beer any more than you do from eating donuts or ice cream or, or anything else you might try. In fact, it has the potential to destroy your life. So they tied these two truths together. If it is true that you only go around once in life, and if it's true that you want to get all the gusto you can out of life that God created for us for abundant living, it's what he rose from the dead to give us, then I want to know how do we do that? That, how do we do that? How do we, how do we lay hold of that? How do we capture that? This morning, I'd like to propose to you that there are three biblical principles that we can live by. These principles come to us as a result of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I believe that if we follow these principles, we can get a taste of what God intended for our lives. And this is the first principle. The first principle is this. You've got to live with nothing to prove. I wonder sometimes how many lives are wasted, how many young lives are wasted, how many teenage lives are wasted, desperately trying to prove our worth to our friends, to those around us. How many adults pass up opportunities to witness, opportunities for integrity because they want to prove their value to their friends? And how much of that value is, is wrapped up in what people think of us, what other people think of us. And we're so afraid to, to stand up for what is right, and that's never been more true than in this woke time in which we live now, because we're afraid we might offend that group, or this group, or that group won't like us, and this group won't like us. I watch my second granddaughter, Evelyn, she's four, and like her older sister before her, and like her mother and her aunt before her, she has become very self-conscious about her image. Just watching her pick out a pair of shoes is a morning's worth of entertainment. Let me tell you, not that shoe, not that shoe. Shoes are flying. Not the 50th shoe in, she's like, I'm out of shoes. I need more shoes to not like. What shoe is going to match this outfit? She's already started down a path of, of living her life according to what other people think. And I pray that she doesn't miss out on what God might have in store for her in her life. Show of hands, how many of you have stayed in close contact with the people you went to high school with in your graduating class? Few of you. For most of us, the day we graduate is the last day we will ever see those people. Yet we tried so hard to live for their approval. 
we have a choice now today to live to the potential for which God created us or to live down to the expectations that don't even come close to what He intended for us. Live with nothing to prove. When you start living to other people's expectations, you lower the bar so much lower than what God ever intended. Paul says this of himself in 1 Corinthians. He says, For I am the least worthy of all the apostles, and I shouldn't even be called an apostle at all after the way I treated the church of God. But wherever I am now, it is all because God poured out such kindness and grace upon me, and not without results. For I have worked harder than all the other apostles, yet actually I wasn't doing it, but God working in me to bless me. You not only don't need to prove your worth to others, you don't need to prove your worth to God. He knows who you are. He knows what you are. And He loves you in spite of yourself. And if you let Him, if you let Him, His grace can have a profound impact in your life. I spent the first 20 years of my life trying to work my way into God's acceptance. Even as a Christian, knowing that my salvation wasn't based on that, yet I tried to live my life as though I had to prove my worth to God. I'm here to tell you that your worth was forever established on the cross of Jesus Christ. Not because of anything you did, but because of everything that He did. You can't outweigh that. It doesn't matter what you are capable of. If you can run a marathon or just watch one on TV. If you want to live life to the fullest, then you've got to live with nothing to prove. Sometimes I find the, the most familiar verses in the Bible to be the most comforting. For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. The Son of God came down here to live, to die, just the way you are for you. You say, how could he love me? You don't know what I've done. And you're right, I don't know what you've done, but he does, and he loves you anyway. You've got nothing to prove. Trust him. Believe in his love. Accept the salvation that he extends to you today. Accept his grace and forgiveness that he gives you, and you will know life in a new and powerful and meaningful way so that you can live with the kind of gusto that you were created for. The second principle is this. You want to get all the gusto there is out of life, then you got to live with nothing to hide. You can't run a good marathon looking over your shoulder. You can't run a good marathon if there's a whole lot of stuff back in your closet. The Bible says in 1 John, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Now, the two points I want to drive home here. Number one is this. Two directions you can go in life. The first direction is this. You can say, well, look, I'm just going to erase that whole moral thing out of my life. I'm going to do whatever I want, wherever I want, whenever I want. And if you make that choice, I guarantee you, you will destroy your life. You don't even come close to the potential for which God created you. This is the most popular philosophy being espoused today, that any kind of morality is old-fashioned, and you'll, you'll never be anything dragging along a bunch of morals with you. I'm telling you, that's crazy. It isn't true. It's destroying lives. Someone said this, and I believe it's one of the most powerful statements I've ever read. He who is enslaved to the compass has the freedom of the seas. He who is enslaved to the compass has the freedom of the seas. You can't go anywhere. 
You can't do anything unless there are some guidelines in your life. And that's the second point, the other direction that you can go. God did not set these guidelines to destroy our lives, but to protect them. God has put these rules in place for us so that we are protected. There's a cargo ship right now, right now, in the, in the bay, stuck there for weeks because they didn't follow the rules. They went out of the shipping lane, and they've been stuck in the mud. That's where all your stuff is, by the way, when you go to the store and there's nothing there. It's out there. You take a boat out there. You can pick it up right, you know, right directly. I enjoy working with wood. I enjoy working with wood, and I have a lot of wood tools. They come with all sorts of safety devices and, and warnings and instructions on how to use them and, more importantly, on how not to use them. Now, you might decide that you're a real man, and as a real man, you need to, don't need to read the instructions. And you may be lucky enough to die with all your fingers intact, but chances are you're going to get hurt. I was using a router one day. It's a woodworking tool that spins a blade anywhere from 8,000 to 35,000 times a minute. It's a blur to watch. Any one of those revolutions is enough to do you great bodily harm, as I found out one day. I was trying to route an edge on a very small, small piece of wood, too small to clamp to the table. And so instead, I flipped the router upside down so now the blade was facing me. I clamped the router to the table, and I duct taped over the switch so that the safety was disabled, and it was always on. I took that piece of wood and I began feeding it through the blade of the router. I was fine for the first three cuts. I had one more cut to go. And you know that's always when trouble happens, on that last one. On that fourth cut, the, girl, uh, the blade grabbed the piece of wood and it pulled it along with my fingers right into the blade. I completely routed the tip of one of my fingers off. looked like ground beef. Happened so fast, I figured that I would be able to pull my hand out of the way if something went wrong, but the blood that sprayed across my shop proved otherwise. Fortunately, my finger was able to recover, though for six or seven months I had no feeling in that fingertip. I tried to hide it from my wife. I refused to go to the doctor out of fear of being thought an idiot because I was one. See, I was living with uh, something to prove that I wasn't an idiot and certainly with something to hide. You see what I mean about rules? They're there to protect us. They guard us from bad things happening. Yet so many times we throw caution to the wind. See, if you're going to live life to its fullest potential and follow the guidelines God has set in place for success in your life, there are going to be moral problems, moral decisions that need to be made. How do I act? Where do I go? Who do I hang out with? But if you follow the guidelines, there is freedom in that life of Christ freedom to the fullest. You can live up to the potential for which God has created you. The day that Adam and Eve decided they knew more than God was the day that they dropped the bar so much lower than God had ever intended. And we still suffer from that choice. But God says, come to me. you got nothing to hide. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to purify us, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. When Jesus died on the cross for you and me, a man who had never done anything wrong, who had been perfect in all that he had done, it was not only the nails that killed him that kept him there. It was the weight of every sin that you and I had ever committed or will commit that kept him nailed to that cross. And as he hung there between heaven and hell, every fiber in his flesh, every drop of his blood cried out, Good news! Good news! 
you got nothing to hide and nothing to prove. He took upon his own soul the shame and guilt that was intended for us so that we could run free, so that we could move toward what he created us to be, so that we could know the freedom he intended when he first created us. You want to live with all the gusto that God intended for you. You want to be everything that God intended for you to be. And you got to live with nothing to prove and nothing to hide. And the final principle is this. You want to get all the gusto you can get out of life, you got to live with nothing to lose. Isn't it funny what we hang on to? What if God came to you today and said, follow me. I want to show you everything that I'm going to do for you. Come with me. Would you be like me? My tendency is to say, well, well, wait, God, I haven't finished my house yet. I haven't gotten married yet. I haven't had kids yet. I still got things I want to do. I still got my career. What about my grandchildren? The story is told of a man driving his Mercedes, and he crashed it, rolled it, burst into flames down a ravine. In the process, he was thrown completely clear of the car. Only his entire right arm was torn off, and, and as he stood there, the police arrived, and he was weeping, and he's going, my Mercedes, my Mercedes, I had $100,000 of options in my Mercedes. Well, he wasn't using that arm. That one was gone, but he said, my Mercedes, my Mer-. and the police said, you idiot. You need to come with us. You've been hurt. He said, but I spent $100,000. I loved that car. And the police said, Mr., your arm is gone. And he looked down for the first time and he said, my Rolex, my Rolex, where is my Rolex? And we laugh. But when you live with something to lose, you hang on to what you can never have forever. You lose the ability to be everything God created you to be. That's what made the Apostle Paul so amazing. There was nothing they could do that would stop him. You stop preaching or we'll beat you up. Paul's attitude was, I count it a privilege to suffer for the name of Christ. In our country, we don't suffer for much of anything. Usually we try to avoid that. I count it a privilege to suffer, Paul said, to suffer for Christ. Well, how confounded were his enemies? They had a little meeting. They got together and says, well, we can't give him privileges. What are we going to do? And one of them said, I know, let's kill him. So they came back and said, you stop preaching or we'll kill you. And Paul's philosophy about that was, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. I get a promotion. I get a promotion. And they got together in a little group and they said, well, we can't promote him. What are we going to do? And so they killed the Apostle Paul. And when they were done, they clapped their hands and they washed it, thinking that they had put an end to that track of craziness that was the Apostle Paul. But what they didn't see was what would happen next. They didn't see Paul run into the arms of his father for the first time, experiencing a body without pain, without hurt, and seeing God's glory in all of its brilliance and majesty. Paul recognized he had nothing to lose. My father died in 1995 from prostate cancer. And up until until that point in his life, I didn't have a close relationship with my dad. He had a hard time relating to me, to my brothers and sisters for that matter. He struggled with how to show love and affection. We didn't talk much. Until his last year when he became a different person, a new man. What made the difference 
from the man I knew growing up to the father that I had for that last year of his life. Well, it wasn't that my dad knew he was dying. It, it wasn't that he knew pretty much about when he would die. No, the difference in my dad was that he now was living with nothing to lose. And so the conversations that we have put off in our lives, he went after with a new zeal. I was closer to my dad that last six months of his life than I had ever been in my entire life. And I'd do it all over again for those six months. What made the difference that he was living now with nothing to prove, nothing to hide, and nothing to lose. Three women walked along a road. The air was dusty and heavy with mist. They didn't talk. There were tears in their eyes. They were on their way to see Jesus. And as they approached, a bright light cut through the early morning mist, and they saw an angel sitting on top of the stone that had been rolled away. They were deathly afraid. And he said to one of them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? Why do you seek the gusto God intended for your life where there is none? And then he said these words, The one you seek is not here. How many of you know the three words that come next? Say them with me if you know them. He is risen. Amen? Now I want you to say it like you mean it. He is risen. It's the World Series. The bases are loaded. The Orioles are playing. Probably not in this decade, but it could happen. The Ravens are in the Super Bowl. Well, maybe that's a better sight. It could happen. It's 100 and 100 years. It won't matter a bit of difference. Now, I want you to say it like it's the greatest thing that you've ever found on earth. Let me hear it. He is risen. Good news. Good news. Amen. And if that's true, then you've got nothing to lose. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You want to live with the gusto that God intended, then live with nothing to prove. Live with nothing to hide and live with nothing to lose. Worship team, you can make your way back up. I want to end with this story. There's a picture hanging in the Louvre. Don't know if any of you have been to the Louvre. My wife and I had that privilege right before the pandemic shut everything down. In fact, we landed an hour before international flights were, were canceled. The picture is called Checkmate. The devil is sitting on one side. There's a chessboard. There's a guy sitting on the other side. The guy sitting on the other side has his head in his hand and, and a look of desperation on his face. On one particular day, there were a group of athletes and world champions being given a special tour. And in the tour was a world-class chess player. And as they walked past the picture, the tour guide explained to them that someone had lost a battle in this game to the devil. And so the group moved on to the next picture to see something else. But the world-class champion, chess player, he stayed behind and he just stared at the picture. And soon they noticed that he was not in the group. And the tour guide went back and he said, you know, we're, uh, we're, we're moving on. Are you coming? 
And he said, well, I've been looking at this picture, the tour guide said. Yeah, it's, it's called Checkmate. The devil's laughing, the man is lost. Yeah, he said, I've been noticing that. But he said, while I've been standing here, I kept looking at the picture. I got a problem, he said. Well, what do you mean? Well, you know, I'm a world champion chess player, and I spend my life playing chess. And normal people don't always see what a world champion chess player sees. He said, when y'all walked off, I looked at the devil laughing, and I looked at the man in desperation. But he said, I noticed something on the chessboard. He said, either they're going to have to change the painting, or they're going to have to change the name of the painting. And the guy said, well, why? Why? Why would they have to do that? He said, you know, I'm a world-class chess champion. And he said, what I observed on the board is that I found out that the king still has one more move. I'm here today to tell you the king still has one more move. In the fullness of time, God sent his son. I dare you to believe it. The king has one more move. One more move over your finances. One more move over your marriage. One more move over your children. Because of the resurrection, he has one more move. Because when it looked like Satan was going to win by crucifying Christ, God says, I got one more move. Up from the grave, he arose so that you can have life with all the gusto God intended and created you to have. And so that you can live with nothing to prove, with nothing to hide, and with nothing to lose. Faith Fellowship. Know that God is for you and not against you. We'll end with the song.